T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Bradford Show. That's my open? That's what they used to call me, Swivel Hit Bradford. That's my open. I'm okay. waiting for you to so justify wh- your stupid opinion. Bradford Show. That's delicious. All right, very, very privileged to have on a guy, a very interesting guy, Tom Tippett, who used to work for the Red Sox and was an integral part of actually what's going on right now with all the analytics, with and most notably, the thing that I think people most will recognize is the inventor of Carmine. Do you have that on the business card, Tom? I don't. I don't. It was uh, Theo Epstein who came up with the name Carmine. So, well, know, some, some of some of what became known as Carmine was uh, was developed um, in, at my company before I started working with the Red Sox, and then we embellished it rather substantially once we got there. So, Carmine is definitely not just mine by any stretch. It was a team effort by everybody at the Red Sox building on some things that I had put together before I got there. Yeah, but you know what? For the, for the sake of this podcast, I'm just going to say you invented it. No, I'm just kidding. You certainly invented it more than Thea. Thea might have invented the name, but the name was just part of it, and I guess you had to put a name to it. Um, Tom, uh, so tell me a little bit before we start, just a little bit about you started the Red Sox about 2005, four. The uh, the first project I did for the Red Sox was in September of two thousand and three. Okay, okay, and and so you were just you were just uh, on a four higher basis. And when did you become full time for the Red Sox? I became full time in November of two thousand and eight. So the 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 path that got me there was that in the in the early to mid nineteen eighties, I created a computer baseball game called Diamond Mind Baseball. And I did a lot of research back in the 80s, uh, compiling play-by-play data and using that data to do my best to objectively rate player skills for base running and throwing and holding runners and and uh, all the other aspects of, of what makes up a baseball game. And I wanted the, the player ratings to be based on my best effort to do objective research on their actual performance and rather than going off of a popular sentiment about who could do what particularly well. And so that, uh, so I started working in the 1980s to compile a database of baseball information and to build a lot of tools around that, that were all centered on coming up with objective ways to evaluate player talent. And that is mostly what, Brought me to the attention of the Red Sox in 2003. Um, who was it? Who thing. was it, Tom? Who was it? Who? So you you can have this sort of presence and and have that that background. But how did you said they brought to the attention of the Red Sox? Who who was it that said, "Hey, we got to talk to this guy"? Um, the it was Bill James. Actually, the the very first thing we did with uh, with the Red Sox was. Um, because of Bill James. It was the last week of the 2003 season, and the Red Sox 
Uh, if memory serves, the Red Sox clinched the wild card on the Tuesday night of that week. Mm-hmm. And they knew they were going to be playing Oakland in the first round. And on Wednesday afternoon, uh, Theo called his guys together and they had a meeting on how to prepare for the, uh, the upcoming series against Oakland. And somebody, I'm not sure who it was, uh, somebody said, well, it would be pretty cool if we could actually run a computer simulation of the series before it happens and see if we learn anything from that. And Bill James was in the meeting and said, hey, I know a guy who's got a simulation, and he lives 10 miles from here. Let's, let's see if he can do this. And so um, I got an email from Bill at 4 o'clock on Wednesday afternoon asking if it would be possible to put together a simulation by Friday. And uh, <laughs> and naturally we said yes. And uh, so the, there were two of us at my company at the time who were involved in the project. Um, I was I was leading the effort and uh, a lot of the work was done by Zach Scott, who's now the vice president of research and development for the Red Sox. Sure. So Zach and I worked very hard Wednesday night into Thursday and and pulled a long night on Thursday night and finally uh, went over to Fenway at 4 o'clock on Friday afternoon and spent several hours with the guys there um, playing out the uh, the first game of the Oakland series and seeing if it provided any insights into, you know, who might be the last the best players to choose for the last uh, roster slot or two for the uh, 25-man roster for well, the series. Well, well- well, first of all, I mean, you must have been blown away. That you obviously so you're you're you grew up a Red Sox fan. Are you from around here? I'm from Toronto, but I did grow up a Red Sox fan. Okay, um, as you may recall, the uh, Blue Jays didn't come into existence until 1977, and I became a big time baseball fan in 1967, and was a diehard Red Sox fan from that year forward and then uh, of course when Toronto got a team my my loyalties were divided at that point but uh, I, I was always uh, a Red Sox fan first when I was a kid so so when as a Red Sox fan you get this email on a Wednesday afternoon from from the Red Sox who were about to go in the playoffs saying hey can you help us win a World Series I mean that must have been bizarre well, that was certainly unexpected and definitely one of the coolest moments of my <laughs> baseball career. <laughs> well, so so I have to ask, you know, so you go, so you give them the the projection, the simulation, and you know, listen, not everything's going to hit, but was there something that you guys were able to simulate or project that actually, like, yeah, we nailed that one? Uh, you know, it was. We only had a few hours, so it was difficult to get too deep into the scenario. I mean, I think if we'd known weeks in advance that uh, we were going to be asked to do this, and that, and if we had known weeks in advance which opponent or opponents we needed to prepare for, we would have had time to do something that was really scientific. Um, as it was, I think it was a it was a very interesting experience. I don't know that it had a big impact on the. Um, on the preparation for that series. But, you know, to think about it, though, Tom, now where things are at now, I mean, this is, this is only, you know, uh, 15 years ago, and, and, and you know, every single day is a simulation. I mean, this is, I guess, good for them for trying to think outside the box, but to think about how uh, archaic isn't the right word, but, you know, how far they've come, it must, must amaze you. Yeah, you know, I think the the underlying theme here is really just um, trying to to be more objective and to use whatever 
you know, thought processes are available to do to be as prepared as you possibly can. And at the time, that particular project, we, we did computer simulations, but there's lots of other types of analytical work you can do that all kind of come back to the same attitude of trying to ask interesting questions and, and accumulate enough data and tools to try to answer those questions as objectively as possible. So now we, this, I, I'm gonna, I want to get into your take on sort of how things have evolved in a little bit. But you, you had talked about how Carmine, and, and for, just so I don't butcher this, in a, in a nutshell, just a, give me an explanation of what Carmine is in case people don't know. You know, at its, at its core, Carmine is an information system, and that's all it is. Um, you know, every business in the world uh, needs to organize the data it has on its on its customers, its products, its processes, and make that data available to the senior decision makers. And this was a baseball version of that. So when I had I had built some technology at my own company back in the 90s and, and early 2000s that allowed me to compile a pretty substantial database of baseball information and a, a sizable set of tools for adding value to that information. And um, the, basically what Carmine was was an effort to, to bring that approach to a major league organization. Um, and maybe that maybe one of the best ways to kind of characterize it is to is to talk about kind of how Carmine got started. So I told you that we did that first simulation project in September of '03, mm-hmm. and then in the spring summer of 2004, um, the idea for Carmine was was uh, hatched at the Red Sox. Um, so I told you that Zach Scott helped me with that simulation project in '03. Well, right. in the spring of '04, he got. Uh, an internship with the Red Sox and uh, his first project was to spend two weeks of 14 hour days going online and cutting and pasting statistics from various websites and putting them into spreadsheets so they could be printed out and delivered to people to prepare for the amateur draft for that year and then after the draft was over they asked him to start doing some projects on the uh, major league players and Zach pointed out that if he was still working at my company, he'd be able to just tap into my databases and things that would take him days to do by hand. The way he was doing things at the Red Sox, he could have done maybe in an afternoon using the tools that we had built. So basically what Carmine was was simply a database where we could store all of the statistical information we had on both major league and minor league players and then start adding to that other things like information about player contracts, um, scouting reports, um, any other notes that we might have that might be relevant to how we evaluated a player, and and so on and so forth, so that anybody in the senior leadership of the Red Sox who needed to understand the prospects in the Pirates organization or um, some player who came up in a trade conversation or anything else that might be on their mind, they would have a single place that they could go and they could get everything that we knew about that player in one place Mm -hmm. uh, presented on one page or a series of pages that could be easily reached through a couple of mouse clicks. So at, at its core, it was just putting all the information that we had in one place instead of asking people to go to five or six different places to try to put the whole puzzle together. And that... That type of convenience 
was a very big part of the value of the system for the, the people that were using it. Now, there was a lot of other stuff in there, too. I mean, we were... We were doing projections of future performance. We were doing um, tracking actual performance against those projections um, and, and doing a few other things to try to, to generate some ideas that we could talk about. Now, one thing Carmine was not mm-hmm. was an expert system that would make decisions on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, I... I, I there were a few times during, I'd say, the 2005 to 2012 period where, <laughs> you know, Carmine might come up in some discussion on sports radio or <laughs> in the media or something, and and there was a robot. Uh, pardon me. There was a robot. I mean, that's that, that was that was like how it was classified in, in places that you're talking about. Well, you know, I don't know who said what to to the press that, that gave. You know, gave people some impressions about what it was, but you know, I, I would be chuckling to myself sometimes driving home from the ballpark, listening to this on the radio, and people were talking as if we were in a room and there was a special seat set aside for Carmine, and Carmine would be saying, <laughs> "Sign this player, trade this player," and it was nothing like that. It was just you know doing what all businesses do, which is pulling all the relevant information together and presenting it to the decision makers in in a very natural way, so that they could do their jobs more. Efficiently. Was there was there anything? Did other any other team have this, or was this, to your knowledge, pretty pretty new to Major League Baseball? Um, I know Cleveland had already started building a system before the Red Sox started. So the Red Sox might have been second, or maybe maybe there were one or two others out there that nobody was talking about that we didn't know about. So we were definitely early adopters, mm-hmm. um, but we weren't the first. Do what do you, what do you remember? You said Theo named it. What do you remember about his his uh, not willingness because obviously you're going to take any information you can. But his embracing of of that whole that whole system. Uh, well, he he was certainly an avid user of the system, like the others in the office were. I mean, within I don't know, within a year or two, every major meeting that we had in the office, whether it was preparation for the amateur draft, preparation for the trade deadline, free agency, and in, in October, November. Every meeting, you'd you'd walk into the conference room and there'd be 14 or 18 or 20 people sitting around the table and every one of them had their laptop open in front of them looking at Carmine during the the entirety of the meeting. So it was was a core resource that everybody used from Theo all the way down. Why why did it get a name? I mean, obviously you said Theo named it, but did you guys say, "We, we really need a name for this? Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't know the entirely what was in Theo's head, but um, he he definitely wanted something other than a a boring acronym. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he kind of challenged us to come up with a name, and when nobody did, uh, he came up with Carmine, and it stuck. Of so, course, <laughs> he had more votes than anybody. So. <laughs> so, so how did it evolve? I mean, it was obviously you start with something. And and now we're sitting here, and this is you know uh, the Red Sox are going to have a new system, and this is we're going to give the Carmine a, a victory lap here, the Yaz victory lap. Um, but to this point, it must it must evolve quite a bit, right? Um, it, well, it has, and I think when it comes to baseball analytics over the last I don't know even thirty years, um, most of the major. Um, innovations have been driven by the availability of new data. 
So back when I was building the tools that became version one of Carmine, uh, we had we had play-by-play data that told us the result of every play and for part of that time the result of every pitch. So we knew that a pitch resulted in a in a ball or a call strike or a foul ball or a ball in play, so on. We knew we knew the result. We didn't know whether it was a fastball or a slider. We didn't know the velocity. We didn't know where it crossed the plate. But we did know the result of the pitch. And we knew the result of every play. So and and starting in the early nineties we had information on where, roughly speaking on the field, the ball was hit to. So we knew that in the course of the season there might be might have been 181 balls that were line drives hit to shallow left center field. And we knew how many times the left fielder made a play on that ball, how many times the center fielder made the play, and how many times that ball fell in for a hit, and how many of those were singles and doubles and triples. So we had that kind of results-based information going back to the late 80s and, and especially into the 90s. Um, and we were able to do a lot with that kind of information. But then in 2007, um, PitchFX came along, and it gave us information, much more detailed information on the, the, the type of the pitch, the velocity of the pitch, and where it crossed home plate, and, and actually a large part of the trajectory of the pitch from the pitcher's hand to the plate. And, and that opened the door to all kinds of new analysis that we could now do on, on pitching and hitting. And then the next wave came along when we started getting um, what they called hit FX data, where those same cameras that were tracking the pitches could track the, the batted ball as it left the bat. And we started getting the launch angles and velocity that people are talking about these days. Mm-hmm. And then finally, in 2015, Major League Baseball introduced the StatCast system, which uh, tracks the location and movement of the players as well as the baseball. So theoretically, when StatCast is fully functional and it's tracking everything as accurately as, as you need to, that 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 data on, on where the players are at all times and how quickly they're moving and where they're moving will, in essence, allow us, us being the baseball research community and everybody who does this kind of work for baseball teams, to allow us to redo all the work that I did back in the 80s and 90s using much better information mm-hmm. and much more complete information, but still trying to answer mostly the same questions. You know, how much... You know, how many runs does the best center fielder in baseball actually save, and how does that happen, mm-hmm. that kind of thing? And, and how much value do we put on that versus the other aspects of that center fielder's game? You know, his hitting ability, his bunting ability, his base running ability, and all that. So it's, it's all really... It's all really about collecting as much information as you can and then trying to add as much value as you can to that data to get better and better at evaluating player performance today and projecting future performance for those players. So the, the new system I think they're, they're planning on or they're building out is called Beacon. When you heard that, they, that Carmine was going to have at the end of this run, was there a, it was, is there a little bit of a soft spot in your heart for, you know, can't we just keep it going? Can't we just tweak it here or there? I mean, this is because this is you talk about a good run. I mean, this is you're you're talking about over a decade of something that the average baseball fan, the average Boston baseball fan, if you said this, they have a at least a vague idea of what you're talking about. It is part of the fabric of how we thought the Red Sox did business. Well, 
you know, there's a couple of things about that. One is um, I certainly I certainly had a great time during my whatever it was. 13 years with the Red Sox, either as a consultant or a full-time employee. It was a great run. It was a tremendous learning experience. I had a great deal of fun, and it was very exciting to be there for a time when the team was doing so well. Um, as for how I felt when I found out that, that Carmine was going to be replaced, um, it, that's, that's, it was a non-issue. I mean, I was the one starting in about 2006 who was – telling Theo and Jed that uh, at some point in the not-too-distant future, we have to think seriously about building a second generation of this tool because at the time, it was already five- or six-year-old technology, and um, I knew that at some point we'd want to replace it with something that was a little more modern. And uh, you know, the nature of baseball being what it is, um, there's always something going on. There's always new problems to solve every day it's really hard to get people to slow down and think about replacing something that's doing a good job Mm -hmm. and so it it ended up the first generation of carmine ended up lasting several years longer than i would have recommended that they stay with it Mm -hmm. um but there was always something new to work on and it was hard to justify not doing those new things and going back and rebuilding something that was still working pretty well. Mm. So as it turned out, um, we, I don't think they kicked off the project to actually build that second generation tool until the spring, early summer of 2016. Mm-hmm. But it was something that I was advocating for the better part of 10 years. So, you know, it's not like, you know, somebody came along and said, hey, thanks, Carmine, but you're not doing it anymore. <laughs> you know, I was probably the leading advocate for building a second generation system. So um, there was no real sadness in seeing its time come to an end. It was always going to happen at some point, And maybe maybe it could have been done sooner. But we always had other things to work on. Well, so when we talk about, you know, I sat down with Zach Scott in spring training. It was really interesting him talking about, obviously, they've they've added some more people and and they've also feel like they had in this year with armed with more information. And this every year, it seems that to be the case. But of of all this information that we were talking about, and he had cited the the defensive metrics as probably taking the biggest leap. What is the thing that fascinates you the most in in terms of how things are going or how things are evolving from the analytics world? Well, I, I think that the biggest thing is something I've already talked about. It's the it's the promise of um, being able to redo all of this work um, in a better way using data from Stackcast, um, and that that will only happen. It'll only come to fruition fully when Stackcast is accurately tracking every pitch, every thrown ball, every batted ball, all the way to the end of the play and doing it accurately enough to support research caliber um, work. I mean, there's a level of data accuracy and completeness that's good enough for entertainment purposes, you know, good enough to cherry pick a handful of plays to to talk about and illustrate on a game broadcast. And then there's the level of detail and accuracy that you need if you're going to, to do really comprehensive analytical work. And I think right now StatCast is somewhere between those two. Um, 
you know, I don't think they're, I'm, my, my hands-on experience with StatCast is out of date by about 18 months since I left the club, but um, I talk to people from time to time about how it's evolving, and my sense is there's, um, they still haven't quite gotten to the point where they're tracking everything all the way to the end of the play, but there's a lot of good information in there, and, and the fact that we we no no longer need to to guess about where a shortstop was standing when the play began and how much ground he actually had to cover in order to make that play. That just makes it a little bit easier to do accurate defensive ratings uh, than in a, in a time when you knew that the, the batted ball was hit to a certain spot and you knew that the fielder made the play, but you didn't know where the fielder was starting from. And so all of our defensive evaluations up until um, almost today were based on systems where we we knew a lot about the batted ball, we knew the results of the play, but we didn't know where the fielder began. Mm-hmm. And when you when that's the case, you can you can give a fielder a, a score for how many plays they make relative to their peers, but you can't know how much of that playmaking ability was his athleticism and his his mental game versus how he was positioned by his coaching staff. And we can pull that sort of thing apart now and say, all right, this is the portion of the result that is attributable to how he was positioned, and this is the portion that's um, result that resulted from his own reactions to the play. And by being able to split those two things, it allows us to do a much better job of um, preparing for opponents and doing that defensive positioning in the first place, on the one hand, and also evaluating the skills of the player on the other hand. And uh, and that just makes it easier for front office executives to make good decisions about how to win the most games possible with their current roster and then also how to think about changing that roster going forward to try to put a better team on the field. Well, well and Tom, I talked to, you know, another part of this is, you know, just a couple of weeks ago I talked to some players, I talked to the coaches, and I've talked to Zach about this, is that another challenge is to get the, the players to buy in Obviously, get the coach to buy in. Obviously, get the manager to buy in. And because you're sitting there and you're saying, we have all this information. Listen, we just have to use it the right way. And I certainly with this regime, there, there, is, there is at least an, um, an acceptance uh, maybe that there wasn't before, or to a level any there wasn't before. Um, and I'm not even talking about the players because I think the players have a long way to go too. And Mookie Bed said, said to me that sometimes it doesn't feel like baseball. And when that's in your head, I mean, you're, you're going to be reluctant a little bit. Over your time, was, that, was there some push and pull? It wasn't like it's a bad thing, but was there some push and pull saying, we have this information, we just have to get the information into the head of the right people? Uh, well, I, I can answer that question in two ways. Uh, one is within the front office, um, I was very fortunate to work with um, tons and tons of people who were very open-minded and curious and eager to learn. And I felt like I got along great with the scouts, the player development people, everybody that I worked with. And they were all very open to this. There was there was no pushback from within the front office or within the scouting ranks or within the player development ranks that, that I ever felt. Um, as far as players buying in, uh, it was never my job to interact directly with the players. It was my job to provide or to develop tools, develop systems, provide information to the people who then 
relayed that information to the coaching staff, who in turn relayed that information to the players. And I've always felt like it was um, it was not necessary for me to be closer to the players than that. Um, for one thing, the players and the coaches speak a completely different language than those of us who are more technical people. And it's really important, I think, for the people that have the day-to-day relationship with the players, uh, meaning the coaches and the roving instructors and other people like that, to be the ones to process the information and then present it to the player in the way that they know the player can best uh, receive that information. And in a lot of cases, we might discover something through data analysis of some sort, but then it would get presented to the coaches or to the players in the form of, of video clips. Because, um, you know, my, my observation over the years is that um, looking at video is, is a way that players and coaches um, can best either make a point to somebody else or, or understand the point that you're trying to make. And so it, I don't think it would have been productive for us to be like walking down to the clubhouse and putting sheets of numbers in front of players and saying, look at this. You yeah. know, if you change from this to this, you're yeah, like, get like better jo- performance. Like Jonah Hill and Moneyball, I mean, basically, right? Yeah, yeah. I, mean, that, I, thought, I thought there were a lot of things in the Moneyball movie that were very realistic and and i really enjoyed the movie but the idea of one of us walking down to the clubhouse (laughs) and sitting on a bunch of of workout equipment and talking about the uh the dynamics of the ball strike count you know (laughs) that one struck me as as not being very realistic now maybe that did happen in oakland and it just wasn't part of our culture in boston but um it was so it was never my job to to interact directly with the players, and I was perfectly fine with that. Um, I I had a lot of respect for the coaches, and, and I like to think that I had a feel for the the challenges they face in in dealing with the you know the relentless pace of the season and the emotions of the season and the fatigue that comes with all that travel and just kind of finding the right time and the right way to communicate enough information to the players to to try to get them to perform at their best without without burying them in information that was only going to make things worse. Tom, last question, and thanks so much for taking the time. And, and, you know, you're a Red Sox fan. You watch the Red Sox. We've been writing, writing stories now since Cora took over about probably – we've probably written more analytic stories than – than we have in years, and but watching watching the games from where from your vantage point, can you tell a difference in what they're doing, or is it just is it no you know the, people are shifting and can you tell any difference in what this this current group of coaches, manager, um, you know front office can you tell a difference this year compared to other years? Uh, I really can't. Um... And it's not. I'm not saying that I've watched every inning of their games this year and last year, and therefore I'm in a position to to do a really good comparison of the two. Um, you know, a I haven't watched every game by any stretch, and b it's we're only what 19, 20 sure. games into the season, um, so I think it's too soon to tell. Um, and you know the. <laughs> The, the weather conditions for the early part of the season have been so extreme that I'm not sure how accurate a read we're getting on anything at this stage. So I, I think we need to give it a little more time and 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 see if any patterns emerge that that tell us that something fundamentally different is going on. And you know I'm I'm not 
you know, I still talk to my friends at the Red Sox from time to time, but I'm not part of any of their conversations. So I, I have no clue what it is they might be doing differently than, than a couple of years ago when I was well, there. Well, they have things in their hats they're looking at. We know that. So oh, they... I did. Yeah, I did <laughs> hear about that, that yeah. um, just in the way of communication and, you know, how they get the information about defensive positioning to the players on the field. Well, well you know, that sounded like a very good idea to me. And I, I wish we had thought of that a couple of years ago. Well, yeah. And, you know, Alice Cora was on doing his weekly radio uh, hit on WEI, and he had mentioned we were talking about infield defense, and he had mentioned, like, well, you know, I think that, that Zach Scott and, and the analytics department are putting these guys in the right spot, so they just have to make the plays. And that struck me of, of saying, wow, you know, this, these guys don't have to move. And, and, and I'm sure there's a, a, a big element of that, but for the manager to come out and say, yeah, you know, that the, the, they're putting them in the right spot. So, yeah, we might have some problems with Eduardo Nunez's range, but it's okay. You know, it's okay because he just has to make the play right in front of him. You know, I think, I think this illustrates one of the real challenges in bringing this kind of thinking to the game that, that we've had to think about a lot over the last 15, 20 years. Um, let's just talk about defensive positioning for the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been true for many, many years that when a ball is hit into the field of play and does not go out of the park for a home run, that the batting average on those balls in play is about 295, which means the fielders are making the play um, 70 out of 100 times, 7 out of 10 times. Now, let's say that through superior defensive positioning, you can raise that percentage from 70 to, let's say, 72. I don't even know if that's possible, but let's say 72. Mm-hmm. And so you're, out of every 100 batted balls, instead of fielding 70 of them, you're fielding 72. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. That's not a big difference. That's something that you're not going to be able to perceive, even if you sit there and watch every inning of every game. You're just... It's such a small difference. It's just not going to be that noticeable. And and yet, over the course of a season, that can add up to a very big difference. It might add several wins to your team in the standings. Mm-hmm. But let's say that you come in and you've never done this sort of an- analysis before and you're bringing this to the coaching staff and they're bringing it to the players and, and we're saying, hey, we're going to position ourselves very differently than anything you've ever experienced before in your baseball career. Well, first of all, people are going to be skeptical yeah. because people are always skeptical when you try to do something radically differently than it's been done before. And let's say for the, you know, the expectations are now that, you know, 72 times out of 100 will make the play and 28 times we won't. That very first time somebody hits a ball that you would have fielded the old way, but you didn't get to this time somebody's going to say, well, what the hell are we doing? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, if you had left me alone and let me do this the way I've always done it, I would have made that play. And, you know, it's not like anybody's doing anything wrong. The players are buying into the plan. The coaches are buying into the plan. The analytics are sound. And yet, you know, the probabilities of the game are such, and and the, the gains that you can make through this kind of work are small enough that it's very possible that the first of the first, you know, 10 batted balls that are put in play while you're using this new system that somehow just through the, you know, the luck of the draw that your results are a little worse than they would have been before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then your buy-in from the players and the coaches is suddenly at risk. 
So it's it's a fascinating um, thing to to think about how to introduce change to the game in a way that. Um, you know, is going to be successful in the long run, but also gets gets presented in a way so that people are willing to give it time and, and willing to give it a fair shot and, and willing to buy into it instead of second guessing it. If you know the first couple of times you try it, it doesn't happen to work. It's a, it's a, we, were, it's, we were always worried about well, what if it what if it goes wrong the first couple of times and and people we lose all our credibility. <laughs> it, it, it's it's a great point because. Their best, in what you're talking about, their best ammunition in this case is a 17 and two, starting the year at 17 and two. You yes. Know, so right, I mean, so yes. yeah, it's it's a. That's, I mean, that's that's huge. I mean, if you have early success, it can make all the difference in the world. And and it's a complex enough game that if you don't have success, it's very easy to blame the new thing, even if that might not have anything to do with it. Well, well, Tom, I really appreciate it. You know, I was remembering you say he's from Toronto. Back at, back in the day, and, and when they, I, I did go to tr- exhibition exhibition stadium. I did see the Red Sox play there. I remember Rick Miller was playing center field. We yep. we thought we had very good seats, ble- in, right in the, in the bleachers. Yet you realize if you have a first couple rows, you couldn't see over the fence. So <laughs> right? it was yes. Yeah, so uh, well, oh, what a terrible, terrible, terrible park. Uh, but Tom, so thanks so much. This is a lot of fun for me, and, and I really appreciate it. And uh, and uh, congratulations on everything that you've done because it is a big part of what has happened. And and uh, and I think people should understand that. Well, thank you, Rob. It was certainly a lot of fun for for my years there, and uh, I'm I never expected to have that opportunity, and I'm really glad I did. All right, Tom. I'll talk to you later. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 